It is a war that has made headlines here because American lives and property are in danger. But what's really happening in Liberia? Tonight, a unique behind-the-scenes look at rebel forces in battle and their leader as we focus on Liberia's brutal civil war. This is ABC News Nightline. Reporting from Washington, Forrest Sawyer. Look around the West African nation of Liberia and you'll see echoes of the United States. The country was founded as a home for freed American slaves. The capital city is named after President James Monroe. The soldiers dressed like American GIs and American culture is widely admired. Look around and you'll also see the fingerprints of the U.S. Washington operates critical intelligence and communication installations there. Military ships and aircraft are permitted to land with just 24 hours notice. So it is an American problem when Liberia sinks into civil war and economic collapse. The government's run by a former army sergeant critics call a murderer and a thief. The rebels are led by a former government minister accused of embezzlement and associations with Libya's Muammar Gaddafi. Peace talks now in their second day remain deadlocked. Just how brutal is this war? We begin with a remarkable portrait drawn by Nightline producer George Rivera and correspondent Don Cladstrup of life inside the rebel forces. This is what you might think paradise is like. Sweeping palms, endless beaches. But those are not ordinary beachcombers. The only shells they care about are the ones you put in guns. They are rebel soldiers, members of the National Patriotic Front, a movement aimed at overthrowing the government of President Samuel Doe. Though well-armed, their greatest weapon is fear, and they are suspicious of everyone, anyone whose sympathies might be pro-government. These men say they are farmers, the rebels are not convinced. The suspects were captured while trying to paddle a canoe across a nearby river. Rebels think they aided government soldiers in escaping from the area. <laughs> Confess or else. The rebels will do anything to extract a confession. Cries of innocence are ignored. The intimidation continues. The rebels seem to enjoy their work. Finally, it stops. Don't kill him now, one rebel says. This is the kind of terror Liberians face every day, the nightmare they have had to live with ever since civil war erupted six months ago. And yet, to hear some describe it, one might get the impression such behavior is justified. This is just ordinary civilian uprising. It's not a military coup, not a military situation. Ordinary people uprising, trying to bring fair play and justice. Charles Taylor is leader of the rebels. What he really wants is to be leader of Liberia. His adoring followers, in fact, already call him president. As a former advisor to the real president, Taylor fled to the United States in 1983 after being charged with embezzlement. Today, with Liberia's economy in ruin, with its government riddled with corruption and its army plagued by desertions, 
Charles Taylor is back, demanding his old boss resign. And what if he doesn't? We'll kill him. If he doesn't give himself up, which means that he wants to fight, we'll kill him. Charles Taylor has no right to ask my resignation. We have a government that was duly elected by the people of this country. And anything that has to do with resignation must come from the people themselves and not uh, Mr. Charles Taylor. So to answer your question, I'm not going to resign. And that's where the battle line is drawn. On one side, as most see it, a power-hungry criminal who will stop at nothing to become president. On the other, a tin-horned despot who came to power through the barrel of a gun, whose record of human rights abuses ranks just behind Idi Amin. Caught in the middle are thousands of civilians. At least 200,000 people have been forced to abandon their homes, leaving with whatever goods they can carry, using any transportation they can find. They have no food except the food which is growing in the bush. They have no availability to medicines, no availability to water, no sanitation. And no hope. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, have been killed in the Civil War, a conflict fueled by tribal hatreds and atrocities by both sides. The killings have never stopped. The uh, mayhem has ne you know, never stopped. The country is going downhill, it's ruined, the economy is ruined, everything is just, you know, it's just taking a backward turn. If it weren't for the bloodshed, it would almost be comical. These are the people Taylor says will help restore democracy to Liberia. Young people, uneducated people, tripping out on the thrill of taking part in revolution, dressed in clothes they've stolen along the way. Their idea of a good war is the chance to steal more. There is no chain of command here, but there is magic and superstition. This rebel is holding the leg bone of a government soldier he says he killed. He thinks it'll bring him good luck. This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? I close my eyes and see. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 139. I am your co-host, Dimitri, and today we are finally picking back up with the fourth chapter of Demon Forces. Now, if you're listening to Demon Forces for the first time, I would highly recommend going back and listening to the first three installments, which have been released on the public feed by now. But that will give you the best um, level of context for everything we're going to be discussing today. Now, for those of you that have been listening along, we left off last time discussing the assassination of uh, the president of Burkina Faso, Thomas Sankara, in October 1987. And we discussed at length 
how that was the result of a conspiracy by Deputy Head of State Blaise Compare, who would become president, and certain Liberian exiles, uh, including the person uh, that is really going to be the central figure uh, in today's chapter, Mr. Charles Donkey Taylor. And uh, as we also went through extensively, this was a plot that was backed and to some degree uh, instigated by both the CIA and French intelligence and French interests who thought that Sankara was too much of a socialist, which he was, uh, to his credit, and uh, basically he had to go. And I think when we left off last time, I mentioned that given all the evidence, this was almost like the sacrifice that Charles Taylor had to make to the gods of imperialism and neocolonialism in order to get U.S. consent to launch his own revolution in Liberia to overthrow President Samuel Doe. So that's some pretty heavy subtext for Charles Taylor going into this. We have to consider every time we talk about him, this is a guy that has been engaging with shadowy forces and is willing to engage in extremely nefarious plots like murdering Thomas Sankara in order to get what he wants. So in due time, we will unpack the question of what it is he really wants and who he's working for and what purpose he serves, etc. But today we're going to focus a lot on oral histories from the people that either were opposed to Taylor or were supposedly sitting on the sidelines, i.e. the Americans, who ostensibly were not supporting either side. We're going to hear about their reactions to Charles Taylor, because in many ways Charles Taylor is like a ghost or a bush devil. He's an idea. He unleashes forces that are, to some extent, beyond his control. But at the same time, there is a specific character to the war that develops that is extremely violent and brutal and nihilistic. It basically is a kind of perfect manifestation of Phoenix program irregular warfare. Also, as I've gone through this chapter, I have wanted to take great care with introducing this extremely brutal and shocking era because it's very easy in many Western depictions of this conflict and often like many conflicts around the world, um, not just in Africa, but there is this sort of a tribal thesis that these people uh, are just, they're, they're underexposed to civilization, they have tribal hatreds, and they've been killing each other for thousands of years and things like that. As we've seen in the previous chapters of Demon Forces, while there are very real tensions in Liberian society between the Americo-Liberians and the indigenous tribes, in between various tribes, um, and of course, 
with the ascent of Chairman Doe, he stokes like all of this tribal animosity. But for most of Liberia's history, especially in the 20th century, it was mostly considered immune from internal disturbances and tribal rivalries and you know civil wars and coups and things like that. Liberia was a beacon of stability and respectability in West Africa. So when the Civil War starts, the degree of anarchy and violence and viciousness and just over-the-top carnage, while it does take on local characteristics, is not some kind of innate native phenomenon that is just bound to bubble up under the right circumstances from time to time. As we're going to get into, there would not have been a civil war in Liberia without outside forces, without planning, without conspiracy by many different actors. And so in that sense, I think it's important to think about what happened in Liberia is almost like a virus came. And in fact, in one of his many media interviews around this time, Charles Taylor compares himself to a virus. He describes the virality of people in West Africa seeing civilians overthrowing military dictatorships. He is not a military group here. I'm not a soldier. What we seek to do is to destroy these military dictatorships around Africa. And that's that Charles Taylor virus. If the civilians can throw out the army, wow, we are in trouble. Well, I love it. You will fight to the last man. I will get weapons from wherever I have to get it. If the Pentagon's got some, please give me some. As we walk through some of the accounts of what happened today, I'm not being glib by saying that this is almost like an example of the jokerification of a country or how in a very short span of time, a country can slide into something like a cross between Blood Meridian and the road. I don't think things like that usually happen without a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So today, we're going to hear from all kinds of people that were in the rooms where it happened, and we're going to compare their testimonies. I'm going to be pulling some audio from the Liberian Truth and Reconciliation Commission again. Once again, shout out to the YouTube channel, My Black Planet. Just to start here, I'm going to be drawing a lot today from another very interesting book about Liberia, one that I encountered years ago. I've mentioned it before, though uh, Han himself cites it somewhat critically and has certain disagreements with it. Um, which I share, but this is The Mask of Anarchy, The Destruction of Liberia, and the Religious Dimension of an African Civil War by Stephen Ellis, which initially came out in 1999. So it came out while Charles Taylor was still uh, the president of Liberia. Now, there are various aspects of Stephen Ellis's book that I'm not maybe the most fond of, but overall, it is a very detailed, very well-researched history of the first Liberian Civil War and like the, event, the events leading up to it, and also all of Liberian history. But the special contribution of it is 
right there in the subheader, the religious dimension of an African civil war. Now, since this is SJ, we've brought this up a little bit before, like in Demon Forces 2, the Maryland County ritual murders that happened that were actually done by high-ranking members, the true Whig party. This is an aspect of the entire story of what happened to Liberia, and it's not one, thankfully, we're on a podcast where we like to talk about these things and we don't like to push them under the bed or uh, earn them out of discussion, even as we're discussing very uh, real material, you know, geopolitical and economic uh, aspects as well. But this book spends a lot of time kind of investigating the types of spiritual practices in Liberia that um, took on, I think it's safe to say, a whole new character when the war began with very, very shocking consequences. And Ellis spends a lot of time trying to disambiguate the accounts of, say, cannibalism, the use of juju, or, you know, basically ritual magic, the role of the Poro and Sande societies, the always rumored leopard societies of human leopards, etc., and also how religious belief like played into the political dynamics of the war. He really goes deep into that. So that's one thing that Niels Hahn's book, for all of its strengths, doesn't really have a lot of time to get deeply into. But Stephen Ellis is very focused on this, and I think it's very fascinating. We've talked on SJ before, I think in our Joseph Kony episodes, about the conflicts in Uganda and how Joseph Kony was described using various forms of um, basically, yes, well, I think what we can safely call juju or, uh, or traditional folk magic to confer certain benefits uh, on his fighters and also to receive intelligence from the spirit world and things like that. So they were very similar, even though that was Uganda, this is Liberia, there are lots of overlaps in terms of the use of spiritual techniques as a weapon of war. And it tur- as it turns out, almost every faction of this conflict engages in the same type of spiritual warfare practices, including Charles Taylor. But anyways, without further ado, let's get in to Demon Forces 4. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad. 